This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for November 28th to December 2. This week we spoke to Masha Gessen about Trump and Putin and other stuff and we talked about things we were secretly good at. I also introduce everybody to the concept of a Kamenichi day when everything is perfect. And we also got to have a chat to Hannibal Buress. What a week. It's great. Masha Gessen is a journalist and the author of many books, including The Man Without a Face about Vladimir Putin and Words Will Break Cement about Pussy Riot. She's in Australia as a visiting fellow at La Trobe University. She's speaking this Monday at the Bendigo's Performing Arts Centre on the topic of Donald Trump's lessons in American democracy. But right now she's joining us in the Breakfast Studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Good to be here. Many in the liberal press, both here and in the US, have been claiming that Russian intelligence and the Putin regime played an important role <laughs> in Trump's win. You, on the other hand, argue that Trump is a thoroughly American creation. Perhaps you could explain that a little. Um, well, it's you know it kind of boggles the mind that it requires an explanation. Uh, because to imagine that 60 million Americans voted for Donald Trump because Putin made them is really a level of conspiracy thinking that I didn't think we'd be dealing with in 2016. Um, I think that it really, um, it betrays a lack of imagination on the part of a lot of American journalists who have been peddling this conspiracy theory. And unfortunately, Hillary Clinton's campaign was also engaging in this, in this conspiracy peddling. I think um, from her point of view, it was a way to discredit Trump. Um, I think it was a terrible thing to do because it 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 was helping Trump destroy American political culture by reducing it to conspiracy thinking. There's nothing more conducive to establishing an, autoc- an autocracy than peddling and conspiracy thinking. And the fact that both sides engaged in during the campaign is just awful. I'm not, you know, as you can see, I'm not actually going into the issue of debunking that absurd theory because you can debunk something that is absurd on the face of it and and I don't want to be pulled into the possibility of debunking it. You, I saw your talk the other night at the Wheeler Centre and you touched on a point about uh, Putin and Trump that I hadn't thought about and it was that a Trump presidency isn't necessarily good for Putin domestically because, you know, it kind of goes against his narrative of America as this imperialist power. How do you think Putin's going to deal with Trump domestically? Well, you know, I'm not really in the business of making predictions, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so I'll be I'll be I'll be broad because I, you know I, there's no way we can know the details of how it's going to play out. But we do know a couple of things. We know that um, that Putin is really dependent on mobilizing his society against something that's huge, a big enemy, you know, and nothing is as big an enemy as the U.S. is. And he's been peddling an anti-American sentiment for 16 years and really actively for the last four and a half years since he came back to the office of president. He can't just reverse that. I mean, he could, he can reverse all sorts of things, but he will need a substitute. He will need another big enemy and he will need something else to to sort of create the Russian sense of being a, a fortress under siege. And I don't think anything is uh, is big enough. So now he's floated a couple of new ideas just today. Uh, He wants the parliament to call for uh, the annexation 
of uh, occupied South Ossetia and Abkhazia. These are the two um, parts of Georgia that Russia has de facto held since 2008, but has not gone out and uh, got out and annexed. So I think that's an attempt to sort of mobilize uh, that um, that kind of excitement in the population that he got around Crimea, but also to push the bounds with the new American administration. I don't imagine Donald Trump caring. And that means Putin being handed carte blanche in Europe on the one hand. On the other hand, he's going to have to escalate because having carte blanche is not going to get people riled up. Mm. And I suppose that's taking place in the context of a Russian economy that's maybe freefall is a little bit um, over the top. But the Putin administration did manage to consolidate itself on the back of um, Russian oil prices. And that does seem to be a situation that's not returning now. What effect has the economic situation having on Russian internal politics? Well, so that's another reason that he needs an enemy. And uh, he has been able very effectively to blame a lot of the Russian economic hardship on Western sanctions. And of course, the US is seen rightly as the leader of those sanctions. I think that before the, the Putin-Trump honeymoon is over, um, which it will be, I think, very very brief, uh, very quickly over, I think it's likely that the US will end the sanctions regime. The sanctions regime is very fragile. It, you know, it basically deny, uh, depends on constant renewal. And that will create a problem for Putin because he'll have to find a way to blame somebody for economic hardship in the absence of sanctions, which is, again, another reason for him to escalate to try to make sure that sanctions stay in place. Mm. You wrote a book, as I mentioned, about Pussy Riot and their emergence from the wave of anti-Putin protests that began in 2011. With the uh, crisis in Russia now, what is the status of the opposition there? Is there much left of that um, wave of protests that began in 2011? Uh, I, I want to mention that actually last night I saw the play Burning Doors, which mm. is put on by the Belarus Free Theatre in Melbourne, uh, uh, and it's absolutely extraordinary. And it's about the uh, the, the Russian opposition and the, and Masha Alyokhina from Pussy Riot is actually uh, the, she has a starring role in the play. Uh, so that's 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 a plug for something that, that just <laughs> completely blew me away last night. It's such it's such an incredible play and such an incredible commentary on you know being a protest artist in a dictatorship. Um, which is no easy task. And uh, to answer your question, uh, there's nothing left of the protest culture of 2011-2012. It uh, it ended in a massive crackdown. And basically, you know, it it could either have been a revolution or it could have led to to a crackdown. So it um, it ended with a crackdown. At this point... um, you know, Pussy Riot were the first people to get actual jail time in Russia for peaceful protest. Now, four years later, it's routine. I mean, there are dozens of people serving time in Russia. In fact, there are people who've already been jailed, you know, for three years for peaceful protest, gotten out of prison or end up protesting again. So we're in the stage of, uh, of extremely high-risk protest where anybody who goes out to protest is risking jail doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to go to jail, but the risk is very, very real. Um, and, you know, protest very much like, like in Soviet times, dissidence almost becomes a profession because that's, that becomes who you are. You go to jail, you get out of jail. If you continue to protest, you will go back to jail. Uh, there's been some points made about uh, Trump coming to power in the US that it would light a fire under the protest movement in the US, that, that we'd get more of a protest culture because of Trump. Do you think that's going to happen? 
Well, it's happening so far. Uh, I think that uh, people's protest muscles are a little rusty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's been a lot of questioning of, you know, do we have, is it right to protest? He hasn't really done anything yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he was legally elected. So are we supposed to like, question the results of the election? And I'm actually opposed to questioning the results of the election. I think the recount effort is, is, is very counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that protest is really necessary. And, you know, protest serves a lot of functions. And we need to remember that, that protest is a democratic institution, just like elections are a democratic institution. And protesting the fact that Americans elected a demagogue, a populist, a hateful man, you know, somebody who trafficked in Islamophobia, um, somebody who trafficked in the hatred of immigrants, protesting that without questioning the legality of the results of the election, I think is a very appropriate thing to do. Another thing that a protests do is they sort of mark the current normal. It's very important to assert we have the right to free assembly in this country and we're not going to give it up because here we stand in the street. If you don't exercise your rights, they will be taken away from you. And there's no doubt that Donald Trump, from the way that he campaigned, from the way that he has presented himself, is not a leader who wants to recognize the rights granted by a constitutional democracy. So it's necessary to say we're going to stand up for our rights. And do you think we're at risk of kind of changing the narrative around protests? Because we saw protests in Australia's parliament yesterday. I'm not sure if you saw it from people, advocates of uh, refugees and um, against our refugee policy. And they broke into question time, uh, parliamentary question time. And it's been called by the right as this really anti-democratic move. You know, the the right in Australia have kind of pointed fingers and said, there's the left being anti-democratic or, you know, interrupting our democratic right to have question time freely. Do you think there's a risk of that happening as the protest movement rises in the US? What I'm worried about it actually that is that the the recount effort is having that effect. I think the recount effort uh, is, it, it goes to a questioning of the validity of the voting system, which is something that Trump was actually doing before the election. And, and even after the election, he's claimed absurdly <laughs> that um, that two million people voted illegally or however many people voted illegally. And that's how Hillary got her uh, advantage in the popular vote. So I think it's it's similar to the conspiracy thinking. It's just falling into this trap of um, of throwing into question the 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 American voting system, which I think is a terrible thing to do. I mean, there's a problem with the electoral college, which is the way Americans elect a president. But that's the system that was in place for this election. The Democrats should have concerned themselves with getting rid of the electoral college decades ago, and certainly uh, after t- the year 2000, when uh, the electoral college cost. Albert Gore the presidency, even though he had won the popular vote. Mm. Following on from that, in a recent piece, you discuss how in the context of a Trump presidency, we need to shift from what you call realist thinking to moral reasoning. Can you explain what you mean by that distinction? So I think in our political conversation, and this this is more evident when we talk about international relations, but it's really seeped into all political culture. There's this idea that we measure political behaviour by outcomes. Right. So is this going to be effective? So, for example, are protests good because are they going to actually be effective in mitigating Trump or in getting rid of Trump? That's not the number one question to ask. Right. I mean, you have to ask, why are we doing this? And is this the right thing to do? Or maybe more appropriately, is this the wrong thing to do? Specifically, what that piece was about was sort of what do people do when they anticipate 
then they, that they may end up in a, in a dubious position. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about people who are federal employees. There are hundreds of thousands of them, you know, people who work in mid-level jobs in the State Department, in, um, in the National Endowment for the Humanities, who are faced with very real questions. You know, do I stay around uh, as long as I can do my job? And my job is important, you know, whether it's funding scholarship at the National Endowment for Humanities or, you know, funding human rights groups at the State Department, or do I get out in protest against this administration, or do I wait until somehow my job or my ability to to do my job is jeopardized? And I think that the way to answer that question is not to ask the question about outcome, you know, is this going to be effective? But am I going to be doing the wrong thing by staying? And I think probably wrong uh, in the in the piece I wrote about about the right thing. And then I had a discussion with a friend. And I realized that probably asking about the wrong thing to do would be more productive. <laughs> you know, is this going to cross my personal line? And that makes you aware of where your personal line is. Mm. Another piece um, you've written recently for the New York Review of Books, you point out that you've lived most of your life under autocracies and you list a number of rules for surviving them. The first rule is believe the autocrat. Now, Trump seems to be a congenital liar in all sorts of ways. Why should we believe him? He is certainly a liar, um, but I think that, you know, his lies actually serve a very transparent purpose. um, And that's something I'm very familiar with from covering Putin. The point of his lying is not so much to lie as to say, I claim the right to say whatever the hell I want. And that's that's a very important message that he's sending out. So I'm not saying, you know, believe every word he's ever said, hang on his every tweet, not at all. I'm saying, look at the messaging that he's sending out, right? Um, the message that I claim the right to say whatever the hell I want is a very important message. And it tells us this is not going to be a normal, you know, far-right um, Republican administration, like some people are saying, well, now that he's president, he's not going to be uh, crazy Trump anymore. He's going to be just, you know, your regular horrible Republican president will last four or eight years of it and then, you know, and then it'll be over. No, this is actually an all-out assault on uh, American democracy and part of that assault is the is the attack on fact-based reality. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the media's role in this election. We are starting to run out of time, but before we let you go, why do you think the established media struggled so much with its coverage of this election? So I think there are a couple of reasons, but probably the biggest one is that no one normally has the assignment of covering the really, 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 really big story, right? And what I mean by that is that um, American political reporters, and I think Australian political reporters are similar, cover politics like they cover a sporting match, right? So you are sent to cover a debate to see how... um, you know, how, how they performed, whether they looked presidential, who won which round, that sort of thing. But I've borrowed a metaphor for, from my friend Gary Kasparov, the chess champion, who when he first uh, went up, uh, stopped playing chess and went up against Putin as a politician, he said it's like playing chess against somebody who keeps knocking the, the, the figures off the, off the board. And, and I think that what was happening with American political coverage is that, um, you know, reporters would say, okay, so Hillary, you know, went um, E2 to E4, and Trump knocked the figures off the keyboard, and he knocked the bishop off the keyboard, and he knocked the knight off the keyboard, and nobody said, he is not playing chess. <laughs> uh, and that's the story that wasn't written. 
right? That this guy is not playing chess, that this is a new reality. And it can't be covered um, like we cover a sporting match. And it also, the outcome can't be predicted like the outcome of a sporting match, which is, of course, what went wrong with the polls. We've been talking to Masha Gessen. You can catch her this Monday at the Bendigo's Performing Arts Centre. Thank you so much for coming to Triple R. Thank you. You're in Triple R. Uh, do you guys remember Nadia Comaneci? No. You don't know Nadia Comaneci? No. The, she's a, um, ro- she was a Romanian gymnast and the first person to score a perfect 10 oh. in the 1976 Olympics. There you go. She's very there tiny, wasn't she? She was 14 years old at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, They're all tiny. Yes, yeah. that, is, that is also true. Uh, so first person to score a perfect 10. That's all you need to know right now. Right. Uh so I have a friend that um, told me about a thing that her and a partner like to refer to a perfect day as a Comanichi. Oh, oh, that's rad. Yeah. So, and... If not know, a little outdated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a way of bringing it back. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, for example, they have a dog uh, and they d- this one particular day, this dog, it likes to get into the dirty laundry basket and pull out some dirty socks and have a bit of a chew and that's normally not allowed. And so there's one day where they'd, you <laughs> I know... I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah. They'd um, been out to, to the park. You know, the dog had had a great day, like, you know, Played at the park with other puppies, been for a walk, had some treats and, you know, had a big day out kind of thing and then got home and went to go get dirty socks out of the laundry and my friend was like, oh, get out of it. And then a partner <laughs> stops her and goes, no, no, let her have a Comanichi. <laughs> <laughs> let the little puppy have a Comanichi. So... Trying to think of what would ha- need to happen in your day to make it a Comanichi. So there's th- many things that make a day perfect, right? There's, uh, many things that make a day good. Like, for example, um, getting up on time before the alarm goes off. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a good start. Not too, far, start. not too far before the alarm goes off, but just, just the right amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Like you wake up and go, I feel pretty good. And then beep, beep, oh, I'm ready to go ready to go for the day, uh, and then or even perhaps um, having um, a, a sleep in, like you realise that the thing that you had to do in the, the first thing in the morning, you get to have a sleep in, Love so it. that's great. That that knocks it up a bit. And then maybe you have to um, catch uh, a tram somewhere, so you walk out and you walk down the tram stop, bang, yeah, tram's there. there. Don't have to wait, mm. get on the tram. It's not crowded or full of crazy people or anything. Get a seat on the tram. Love it. Yeah, uh, and then you tap on your Mikey, machine's broken, free ride. <laughs> day, I like this day. Day just gets better, right? Yeah. And then you get off the tram, who knows where you're going, maybe some, maybe to meet a friend. Weren't you going to work? Oh, uh, no. yeah, maybe if you want to go to work, you can go to work. <laughs> but either way, you step off the tram, look down, what's that in the gutter? Lobster. Pick up a lobster. Or... <laughs> pineapple if you're feeling, you know, if it's a particularly good day. Or if you don't catch public transport, getting in your car, getting a park out the front of where you want to be. Boom, rockstar parking. Rockstar parking. Uh, or maybe you're going to meet a friend for for breakfast and then you get a delicious meal 
and the waiter comes out and goes, oh, hey, I was just experimenting with some stuff oh, and um, oh. you don't have to try, you don't have to pay for that. And you go, oh, thanks very much. So free meal. Or you, or your mate just goes, oh, no, I've got this. You go, cool, no worries. Um, and then you get a phone call and someone says, um, oh, hey, we'd really like you to do this thing for heaps of money and you don't have to do much work for it. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting this is like delusional. delusional. He's lots of money. Don't have to do much. Then it turns out you just dropped acid. Yeah. <laughs> I have more. Go I've been on. writing down a whole list of things that would make make a day a common each day. I hope um, Kath is listening and she's going to try and feel Mick's birthday. She has to try and make this day happen. I feel like we should just run around the corner and ring her up and say, yeah. oh, hey, here's lots of money. You don't have to do anything. Oh, no, just, you know, but being offered a job where, um, yeah, yeah. you know, it really suits you, your talent and you don't have to stress too much about it. Um, doing some mindfulness colouring in. But then at the end of the day, someone sees it and goes, oh, I really like that, and they pay you 50 <laughs> for it. People paying you for shit is what you're saying. I'll have that framed, that colouring. <laughs> <laughs> or, or there was like a thing that you had on at night. At night time. Like a thing that you weren't really looking forward to. Someone <laughs> rings you and goes, I'll pay you not to go. Yes. <laughs> I feel like this day's it escalating. It gets cancelled. They go, oh, that gig, I'm sorry, but the... Um there's been a there's been a mix up on the date. We've had to cancel it. Don't worry, you'll still get paid. <clears throat> I feel like this day's escalated from starting up when I was just waking up a little bit early before the alarm and getting to a tram on time to random people just offering you money for nothing. For nothing. <laughs> well, what, yeah, that'd be a Kamenichi day. <laughs> <laughs> Stand-up comic actor, writer, producer Hannibal Buress is in the country touring his latest show, The Hannibal Montanable Experience, and he joins us now on Breakfasters. Welcome to Triple R, Hannibal. Thank you for having me. That's a pleasure. Yeah. You're looking very unjet-lagged. I'm so, you know... <laughs> You got to prepare. I hydrated on the plane. <laughs> moisturized. Just moisturized, hydrated, and just kept it fresh. You, get, you can fight off jet lag. You can't just let it take over you. You got to be proactive. You got to get after it. And um, some sort of uppers <laughs> help also. If you have a Modafinil or an Adderall, that can help you combat it and stay up through the day. And then you go to bed at the time you normally would go to bed and you wake up. And it's uh, everything is smooth. So everything was smooth. So now we've got all the plain tips from you. Yeah. Uh, so you're mates with Chris Rock, and he said once about you, if Stephen Wright, Mosdef, and Dave Chappelle had a baby, it'd be disgusting, but it'd sound exactly like Hannibal Buress. Yeah. Do you think this is a fair assessment of your comedy uh, skills? Yeah, my skills. I think he's more. I don't know. I mean, it's nice for him to say that. Uh, and those are a few people that I'm a I'm a fan of. So uh, it's been it's been crazy actually. Just getting to meet Rock. I met him seven years ago while I was writing at Saturday Night Live, and he was you know give me advice on on how to approach things there. And 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 it's been a, a great mentor. But even still, you know where I you know I talk to him on the phone, and he'll come through shows that I'm doing, 
and it's, and it's no, but it's normal, but still not normal because it's somebody whose DVDs I've bought and been a fan of for years, and my and it kind of legitimized me. And partially, it, he came to the first taping of my special in, in 2011 when I taped my first hour, Animal Furnace, and my parents were there, and like Chris Rock, so every, they were freaking out. Chris Rock is there, <laughs> and so um, and that's one thing that's been really crazy. In, in entertainment uh, and in my comedy career is, you know, going from watching people to, you know, working with people and, and them, you know, appreciating what I do. Like, I used to sneak. I, Dave Chappelle played the Congress Theater in Chicago in 2004. Uh, and I remember trying to just talk my way in. Like, hey, I'm a comedian. Can I get in? Trying to, and security, like, we don't give a, we don't care. What are you talking about? But eventually <laughs> I just, it was just, the, you know, the building was very porous. So I just walked and just tried different doors. And then one of the doors was open. And I snuck in to watch Dave Chappelle. Just sat in some seat and just hoped that nobody walked up saying that was their ticket. And then, you know, years later, eventually did, you know, a full tour with him and, and still do a lot of shows with him today. So to go from sneaking into somebody's show, you know, literally stealing from them to working with them. Did um, you confess that to him? I told him that. Yeah. Of course, I tell him that every time I'm around him. Like twice a year, if I'm drunk, I'm like, hey, man, you know, I snuck into your show. <laughs> I snuck into your show 12 years ago. And now we just did a show together. He's like, yeah, man, yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you started out in Chicago, right? Right. Yeah. So where did you start doing comedy? Like, when did you want to do this for a living? I started uh, in my college town, actually. It's uh, Southern Illinois University is the name of the, the university. And it was, uh, the town is called Carbondale, Illinois. It's, all, it's, a, it's just a college town. And uh, so I just started doing open mics there. And it was cool to do it there just because... It was easier to have humor that appealed to other 19-year-olds and just talk about the cafeteria food or the campus security or being a college student. And the teacher, the professor said this, and you ever been in a lecture? And so it was, you know, easy stuff, but it made it, as far as just trying to start out, um, it was it was nice to have that kind of cushion. And I started there, and then after college, I went back to Chicago and did open mics there for uh, a few years and moved to New York and just kept on just pushing and, and trying to work and build a, build an audience. But also, because I was working in that setting for those first couple of years, it made me think I was a better comedian than I was at the time just because I was killing in these crowds. And I went to Chicago and it would, did not go like that when I was in Chicago just because it's a... It's a different vibe, but it it was a great learning experience, and I'm I'm happy that it happened like that. So, what made you a better comedian? Moving to New York and just being around better comics. I think just progression and just life and just working at it and repetition, just doing it over and over, and yeah, that you know, and studying other comedians and and just watching and and you know, just thinking, just you know, being obsessed with it. And focus, and definitely eventually moving to New York, where you see where you're gonna have to follow Chappelle out of nowhere, where you think you're just going on, and and then Chappelle just drops in unannounced and does an hour, and then you have to go up afterwards Get and do out. 15 minutes. <laughs> That's just part of it. Louis C.K. might drop in, Rock might drop in, Seinfeld might pop in, just at the hundred seat comedy club, and you have to follow that. In addition to them, just other. New York 
comedians. Or just our, you know, it's just, and there's so many different crowds in New York. It's the best comedy scene in the world uh, by far, where it's just so many different crowds. You have your tourist crowds, you got black crowds, mixed crowds, uh, you know, younger crowd, hipster crowds, you know, regular club. It's, a, it's just so many different uh, energies all around and um, you can perform so many times in, in one night so it just forces you to, to become better and become versatile. How much do you change your routine for the different crowds or do you write so it appeals to everybody in the first place? I just try to do what what's funny. It varies just because, I mean, I approach doing a 15-minute showcase set differently than I approach doing my hour to, you know, hour show mm-hmm. where 15-minute set for me, I have to, and that's just my approach. It's not, you know, other people mm-hmm. might approach it differently, but my approach is I have to try to kind of get to it and just, you know, have jokes that, that get to it pretty fast versus in my full show, I got, you know, stories that'll go eight, nine minutes and things like that. Uh, I wouldn't do those if I was only, if I only had uh, 15 minutes. I'm not doing one story that takes nine minutes. So it's just, you just try to be be quick and, you know, and just have, yeah, just try to just uh, just get into it, you know. It's kind of impossible to not ask an American at the moment about what's happening over there. And um, I specifically wanted to ask you as a comedian, Roseanne Barr got in a bit of trouble last year when she said that a Trump win uh, of the presidency in the US would be good for stand-up comedians. Yeah. And of course, it's the, uh, how are you feeling about it all post-election? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's the thing is, we were talking about it before, it was a joke to everybody. Oh, Trump's gotten this far. Like one of the jokes I was doing in my set before the election day was, uh, you think there's people working on a Trump campaign thinking, oh, man, I thought this would be a two-month gig. <laughs> <laughs> this has gotten out of control. And part of me even thinks that he didn't think it would happen because uh, the week leading up to the election, he was saying, oh, this is rigged. This is rigged because uh, a guy that thinks he's going to win doesn't talk about an election being rigged. So he that, he was already having his fallback plan. So I don't think he um, wanted to do it. It's, it's weird because he's the former host of The Apprentice and uh, now he is able to push the button. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, funny. <laughs> but you know, I, I'd rather not, you know, Talk about Trump for for four years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so hopefully I don't I don't have to, but it's just a yeah. It was it was funny. I had a TV show, I had eight episodes of this TV show of my own um, in in the states uh, called Why. And maybe first episode we did a couple Trump jokes. It was in July of last year. Did a couple Trump jokes in the first one. This is I think this is right around when he announced. Uh, and then a couple jokes in the second. Uh, episode, and then meeting with the writers, and like, should we do more Trump jokes? Because he has something else going on in the news. And next week, we're like, nah, let's leave that alone. It's gonna go away soon. Let's not do another week of Trump jokes. And this was in July of 2015. <laughs> <laughs> and now, and now here we are, uh, and he's president. But uh, I mean, I think he really is. Uh, just the temperament and like what he displays from his psyche publicly just being that sensitive and 
and commenting more online about Saturday Night Live and Hamilton than he is about other situations with his, you know, people, you know, committing racist acts in support of him, yelling out Trump and then doing something. So the fact that he focuses more on his energy into, you know, a Broadway musical or uh, a sketch television show, which he's hosted before, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really weird. Um, also, he's super old. <laughs> Both of them were old. Hillary was is sixty nine. He's seventy. I'm not saying old people shouldn't dream, but they shouldn't dream that big. Yeah. Like, who peaks? Who peaks at seventy years old? That's weird. Also, just the the need. Who? I mean, obviously, we. You know, it's a position. It's a job, and it has to be filled. But who wants to do that at seventy? Who wants to do it in general? Yeah. Who wants to do it at seventy? What type of It's home? time to retire at what 70. Type? Well, yeah, six, 65 is retirement age. My dad is 64. He's been retired for three years. <laughs> uh, and then, what type of hole are you trying to fill when you <laughs> want to be president I at don't, 70? I don't want to know the answer to that yeah. question. <laughs> There's some deep depths. <laughs> Uh, something kind of similar to that. There's been a few high-profile com- comedians saying that political correctness is killing comedy. Um, what's your stand on it? Uh, I mean, you know, it's just people are gonna react mm. to something if you if you occasion if you say something that a few people don't like, then somebody might write up a blog about it and then. Uh, and then try to get clickbait. I think the internet and internet advertising and just all these different sites and the, and the need for constant content has caused, you know, where people write a lot of BS and just garbage for the moment. I remember last year when um uh when we was, you know, it was a couple uh, the a few days before my show premiered and uh, this website had posted all of the writers that were on my show, the the names of all the writing staff. Mm-hmm. And then some somebody tweeted me and wrote, uh, "Oh, all all the writers on Hannibal's show, only one female." And I just wrote back to her with the tweet quote. I just wrote, "Good counting, champ." <laughs> <laughs> After that, there were two separate articles, Hannibal Burris. Uh, angry at female for 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 talking about how many writers were, like two separate articles about me wow. just tweeting back now that's fine and she she counted the number of writers uh, and it was one female what she doesn't know is she doesn't know that I reached out to uh, several of my female friends who weren't available to write on the show one of my friends was somebody I wrote with before in the past. And uh, she wasn't able to do anything. Somebody else was about to have a baby, so they couldn't do the work on the show that they wanted to do. But, you know, she just went, oh, one woman. But you don't know, like, my director was female. Mm. Like she, So it was just, and in that moment, it's like, shut up. You don't know, you're just going off of this list, and you don't know the, the process or what goes behind running the show. You just want to jump on the... Oh no! Females are riding on their bandwagon when a well, big a big part of my step the booking was female and, and a lot of other aspects of it uh, 
If you get stuck in that position again and you want some more female riders, I'll, I'll come right for you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you got his back. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got to ask you about Broad City because a lot of our, our listeners would know you as Lincoln yeah. from Broad City, right? So um, what's, it been a part, what's it been like being a part of that show kind of as it's blown up a bit? And also, yeah. are you going to get back together with Alana? I, listen, I don't write the show. Come I on. Just, I, I, just act, I just act on the show. I have not... I'm not. I don't. I don't do any. I don't write any of the words. Occasionally, I make up some stuff. <laughs> None of the stories. I have no input on storylines. It's been cool to see it develop like that. I don't know if a lot of people know, but I. It, it started as a web series, mm. and they asked me to be uh, on a web series as, as uh, Alana's date, and Abby had a separate date, and it was sort of you know, built to illustrate the differences in their personalities and how they handle being with men and hanging out. And so, you know, I, I was in this old web episode of it and it was fun, it was cool. And then they got Amy Poehler in the web finale. And then uh, whatever happened, I don't know if she suggested to them or if they pitched it to her, but she agreed to executive produce their pilot. But it's been crazy to see something like that, you know, go from a web series to yeah. pilot. A pilot didn't work, but they kept pushing and then for Comedy Central to embrace it. And now it's, it's really crazy. And just seeing the crowds that they draw and how people react to them and, and, and how people really connect it, to it has been uh, fascinating. That's cool. Um, I feel like we could talk to you for ages, um, but we're probably going to have to wrap it up because we're getting way over time. Yep. Um, but we've been talking about Hannibal. Y'all got DJ decks over there. Y'all going to let me DJ? <laughs> yeah, get on. Would you, please? <laughs> you can stay for another half an hour if you want. Yeah. Um, we've been talking with Hannibal Bures. You can catch his new show, Hannibal Montanable, at Hamer Hall this Friday, December 2nd. Hamer Hall. Hamer Is that Hall. a legendary place? Oh, it yeah. is now. You're playing there. Oh, don't flatter me too much. <laughs> uh, do you guys, um, in your lifetime, I know you're good at lots of things. <laughs> We're all good at lots of things. As to your Tuesday proof, uh, we yes. Bloody yes. Hell. But have, has there ever been a time where you've found you're unexpectedly good at something? Just gone, oh. Uh, many know? years ago when I was a kid, uh, I was really unco at sport and I got a bit better at it as I got older. Uh, but I was on a netball team. I think I've told you before about how – have I told you the story about how I didn't get into the netball team? No. I didn't get to play oh, – Okay, so can I go around this yes. a little bit? I'll tell you this. So in my first ever netball team, okay, I was six years old or seven years old. I was in year three mm-hmm. and uh, it was kind of one of those teams where anyone gets to play because that's what happens when you're six or seven years old or eight years old, very yeah. young anyway. Uh, and we were very good and we got into the grand final and the day before the grand final, we all no. got handed positions on a card because we had a, a lovely coach. She was lovely but, you know, was taking the job very seriously and everyone got handed their position on the card and me and my best friend got a little card that said bench side watchers <gasps> side watchers. your job is the most important job of all it is to cheer on your no, teammates i know no. i know did that fool you at crushing. the time i i remember showing it to mum and i remember mum's face just feeling so bad for me and then trying to 
twisted in a way that was like, you know, this is, you know, Cersei, sometimes the stronger girls just will go out there and give it a shot and you, you're just trying to kind of, how is he <laughs> tell your poor frigging seven-year-old that the heart's been broken because they're too unco for their first ever netball team? Sorry, it, did you spend the entire time on the sidelines? Yeah, on time they lost and secretly inside I was like, ha-ha. That's secret. But every there was just said nobody, that for the first time. nobody subbing on and nah. off. Oh, there was some. There was one. There was a good sub. Giving everyone a go. Me and my best mate. No, I know, right? What that would it have done? I know, devastating. But do you know what? I got out of this during that year. It turns out. So the next season, we had to do practices, um, doing ball up. So you know that thing in a netball court where you they throw a ball up between two players and yes. the player oh, that yeah. grabs it first. Yeah. Turns out I was the best on the team at that. My reflexes were so fast. Also, maybe from having a family, being one of five, I was able to grab yes. food uh, grab really food, fast. Yeah. I'm really good at that. That is my useless skill: grabbing a netball ball in a ball up. Wow. Yes. Well, I hope they've learned from the lesson. Had they given you a go, things might have turned around. I know. Sorry, I derailed Note that completely down. into my useless <laughs> I skill. I thought you were, um, yeah, your useless skill could have been just cheering. Well, that's also a useless skill, yeah. although they lost. So, <laughs> And it's not really <laughs> so cheering if you're that. sort of <laughs> secretly saying, so I hope you lose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what about you? Um, I had... Um, Skill. I, I think I've told you, I, I worked in disability services for a long time, mm. but that was a job that I just got because, I mean, essentially I was really doing politics first time and I decided I needed a job because well, I didn't have any money and I'd left uni, I'd dropped out of uni and stuff. And um, I had a friend who was working in, and I remember I had never even seen a disabled person before. You know, like I, the only reason I, I just knew they were hiring people, I worked into, walked into this um, residential unit and the first thing I saw was this huge guy throwing a chair at the wall. Wow. And um, she basically said, can you start now? <gasps> and so um, I, I think I did a sleepover that first night and I just had not a clue what I was doing, not a clue, you know. Um, mm. And um, I actually turned out to be really good at it, actually, because, mm. um, you know, I like structure. I yes. like discipline. Yes, yes, you do. And all of these things. <laughs> you <are> do, good. Spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. You like, you like all the things that they need. That's yeah. right. Yeah, so wow. I, um, actually, it turned out I'm, I was really good at it. I soon learned how to stop people throwing chairs at you, you know, and how to, um, you know, calm, de-escalate situations. Could you imagine us together in that role? I'd be grabbing the chair. <laughs> And you'd be, because I'd be so fast at it. Anyway. I'd be saying, yeah. saying, get back on the bench, yeah. Sarah. <laughs> that is a very useful skill. Now I feel oh. like a fool for telling oh. you my stupid skill. I was really good at life drawing. <laughs> <laughs> no, you weren't. Really? Apparently, yeah. In, in high school, uh, like I remember, like I did um, visual arts in in year 11 and 12. Mm. And in year 11, we went to our first life drawing class and I found it very confronting. I can imagine. To begin with. And we, I was like, can I ask a quick, was it ladies and men? Were you drawing both? Yeah, or was both, it just... but the first one was, was a lady. Yeah, right. And I was, I couldn't, like I was so confronted by it and I just had the, you know, the easel in front of me and and then it was, like I couldn't look, I could not look until they went, okay, ready, go. Because they, they start off with really quick poses. So it's like, 10-second poses so you just get the basic outline and then they move on to doing it for longer. So those first, you know, really quick poses, I just didn't have time to think about it and it wasn't until, like, we were, you know, halfway through that I kind of stopped and just went, oh, oh, this is okay. It's It's just a naked woman in front of me and that's fine and then I kept on drawing. But my... It also could have possibly been my art teacher just finding something to in, 
give me a bit of encouragement for. But she walked around, she went, oh, finally, finally we've found the thing that you're really good at. Aww. That's you're, that's you're really, really nice. good at life drawing. Yeah. Was that, was that, did, did you take that as a compliment? It's, yeah, yeah. It sounded a little bit backhanded. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you said it exactly <laughs> like that, did yeah. she say it exactly like that? No, no, no. It was more... Um, did she give you a little card and on the top of it she wrote, <laughs> life drawing, your job is to... <laughs> this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.